Have you ever needed a supportive community in your journey to advance racial equity, stop and prevent oppression, and catalyze change in your life or your organization? Join us in our online community at intentionallyact.com. As James Baldwin wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Join us online to confront the challenging questions and situations in your journey to advance racial equity as we build community to offer professional, personal, and organizational development, skills, and knowledge. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Atia Martin. Welcome to Intentionally Act Now, a podcast that supports the All Aces mission to activate consciousness, catalyze critical thinking, and transform capabilities that advance racial equity and build resilience within ourselves and our organizations. We feature a wide variety of leading experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, conflict management, critical race theory, personal growth, and more. Hi, this is one of your hosts, Enrico Imanalo. In this episode, Dr. Martin hosts special guest Michael Berkowitz, founding principal of the Resilient Cities Catalyst. In this conversation, Dr. Martin and Berkowitz connect the dots for our audience on what exactly emergency management is, as well as why taking racial equity into account in the course of emergency management matters for resilience. When communities are already vulnerable under everyday circumstances, Emergencies impact those communities to a greater degree. If in calculating risk appropriately, racial equity is not taken into account, disaster can easily follow disaster. This is Dr. Tia Martin, CEO and founder of All Aces Inc. And welcome to All Aces On Air. I am very excited to be with you today because I am joined by an amazing human being a brilliant thought leader um, in overall uh, uh, the reason you're here today with us, um, someone who has deep knowledge of emergency management, both uh, from a theory perspective, but also from a practical perspective, which is always amazing. And just so that you all have context on um, who the wonderful Michael Berkowitz is, um, he actually is um so is it uh, is the best way to describe it um, is that the work that you all are doing um, is at the Resilient Cities Catalyst um, is really in partnering with communities, um, jurisdictions, leadership um, in um, uh, cities across the world um, to be able to work through implementing major planning initiatives and turning them into real things with um, rooted in the principles and concepts of resilience. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair. That's fair. Yeah. And most recently, you did some amazing work um, in New York City um, in supporting their emergency management efforts. In the past, for folks who don't know, um, uh, Mr. Berkowitz was actually the deputy commissioner of emergency management for the city of New York. So that those that that's a, a big job right and so one of the places i wanted to start um uh as we talk about what it means to do emergency management work because we have folks here who understand it at a very high level um but who would uh, benefit from understanding a bit more about when we say emergency management what are we talking about 
Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Martin. And I just want to point out, you did, you did not mention the way we know each other is you were a brilliant officer. <laughs> and I was uh, at the 100 Brazilian Cities Initiative. And that, so that's how we didn't even, we didn't even have emergency management in our background, right? We, we met later doing resilience, but it's great to see you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, when, when we talk about emergency management, uh, traditionally we talk about it in four phases, right? Mm -hmm. Planning, response, recovery, and mitigation. So the whole cycle of how entities and, um, you know, whether it's private sector or public sector, uh, think about managing through crises. And often emergency management is a very integrated um, discipline. We think of ourselves as the interagency coordinators, whether that's in the planning phase, pulling everyone around the table, thinking about what the planning elements are or in the response or recovery, as we're starting to see a lot of emergency management agencies now get in, um, pulled in and, and, and start to lead the charge on COVID recovery, even though we're still in the middle of this incident. And then of course, how to mitigate for hazards going forward. So that's what we talk about. It's actually, it manifests itself very differently in different parts of the country. When I started in the mid nineties, um, uh, emergency management was much more of a recovery thing. It was the conduit to the FEMA funding post-disaster police and fire and the you know emergency response agencies really drove um the uh, uh response to to events i think that's shifted over the last you know 20 25 years or so uh, and we can talk about that but um when we talk about emergency management that's really Thank you for indulging me in the audience, right? So, because then that brings us to this next piece. So the other half of uh, other two pieces of this conversation is about the intersection of, um, of equity, especially racial equity with emergency management and how resilience fits into that picture, right? Yeah. Um, and so for, for now, let's just say, um, so we've talked about emergency management. One thing I'll add to um, when we talk about emergency management is, um, it's it's an area that most people, even folks in leadership um, of municipalities, whether it's a mayor um, or whomever, whoever the chief executive is for the jurisdiction, oftentimes don't really understand, um, and which leaves a lot of space for uh, missteps, right? Because no, if if leadership doesn't understand what you're supposed to be doing or how it's supposed to work. If the community doesn't understand what it is you're supposed to be doing and how it's supposed to work, then there just leaves a lot of space for a lack of accountability to um, to what needs to to really happen um, in in the field, which gets to this racial equity piece, right? And so, um, talk to us a little bit about kind of where you see the intersection of emergency management and racial equity. Yeah, I mean, I think. And, and we and, and I hope we get into this more. I, I would say, um, in, in some ways, emergency management really started as a discipline. Actually, let's go back a little bit. Emergency yeah. management was the old civil defense mm -hmm. discipline, duck and cover, preparing us for nuclear war. It was the triangles with the fallout shelters and all of that, right? Yeah. And it started to come into its its own uh, around Hurricane Andrew in the mid 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, and the famous Kate Hale, who was the emergency manager of Miami-Dade County, saying, where the hell is the cavalry? 
um, and FEMA is sort of falling down on the job there, right? So, yeah. and, and it's each new big incident, whether that's um, Mississippi River flooding or the uh, Oklahoma City terrorist attacks or the 9-11 uh, attacks or Hurricane Sandy or, 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 um, uh, or Floyd, uh, all of those um, have uh, driven the emergency management discipline further. Um, and I will say that from its roots, it's been very rooted in like super physical structural things. Mm -hmm. We talk about very technical things, flood elevation risk maps and, uh, uh, and uh, structural assessments uh, in certain earthquake scenarios and, and, and. Mm -hmm. And we have not, until very recently, really acknowledged that there's a whole different kind of risk type around the community vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the, to me, that's where the intersection. And it's not fruity, uh, you know, Northeast liberal academic guy sitting in Brooklyn uh, risk. It's real risk. Let's, and we should acknowledge it as 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 real risk, and and really um, and dig in there. And I think one of the things that I think this change was already happening in emergency management agencies around the country and frankly around the world that that saw that there were certain communities that were more impacted um, by the shocks and stresses as we call them, um, by the disasters. Um, uh, but I think you know. 2020, uh, with you know, our national discourse around racial equity and structural racism and COVID together have made that so that th there's no looking away. Like, I feel like this is a moment. Now, how long this moment lasts, how long this moment for action lasts, I don't know. But yeah. I, I think it, it seems like we are here way further than we have been over the last 20, 25 years. And just to give you one couple of anecdotal data points, at Resilient Cities Catalyst, we're doing um, recovery frameworks and recovery strategies for municipalities and counties around the country. And we have seen emergency management ask for the first time that I can remember, actually proactively ask the, the, the strategies to you know use structural racism as a key driver of what the county, city, whoever the client is, should be focusing on in, in COVID recovery. So um, that to me suggests that there's this moment because of all these things that, mm -hmm. that we have to, to really to act. And again, I don't know how long that's going to, you know, how long that's going to last because there's always these moments, mm -hmm. um, you know, after Fair Katrina. Enough. There was a hurricane moment after 9-11, there was a terrorism. Moment. I don't know, you know, it's like, and then we forget, you know, and mm -hmm. how long is this moment going to last? I don't know. Yeah. And and I'm glad you, um, you kind of were headed down the road <clears throat> that I was hoping you would head down um, because, you know, you and I, um, you 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 talked about this in the beginning. We we um, know each other, uh, and in in a previous life, I was the chief resilience officer for the city of Boston, the first chief resilience officer. And one of the um, one of the things that we did that I'm really proud of is the way that we were able to partner with 100 resilient cities and the community 
on really centering racial equity in the context of how we talk about resilience. And that's particularly important um, in this conversation um, because when we think about all of the different moving pieces that support our ability to, um, to build and strengthen our resilience in cities, um, which I do want you to talk a little bit about, um, their emergency management plays a really big role um, in, in the possibilities um, or the limitations or barriers that, that get in our way of being able to do that collectively. Um, can you, so there's a couple of things and I wanna start here which is, you know, when we first met, um, you know, there, there was this, this um, conversation about like, what racial equity is and how it fits into resilience. Um, we just talked about how racial equity fits into emergency management. So can you talk a little bit about, um, to whatever extent you're comfortable, your most recent experiences in working in emergency management and seeing all of these dots begin to connect in, in real life, in real time, as you were trying to um, to support um, the community. And I won't say which community, because I don't want to like divulge too much. Well, I, I think it's okay to talk about it at a high level, which is to say, I went back uh, in March of this year, I went back to help the New York City Office of Emergency Management um, manage, help, help the city of New York manage through the most acute phase of the crisis. And I got to work directly for the woman who was deputized by the mayor as the food czar. She was responsible for all the food operations from distribution and, you know, the big um, uh, supply and distribution uh, to restaurants and ultimately to emergency feeding. And I helped with an amazing team, actually. Um, design and operate an emergency food distribution program. And at, at, in New York, uh, like everything, it got really big really quickly. Mm. And we were doing a million meals a day. Um, but uh, one of the things that's really interesting is that this pandemic, as we've all seen, elevated the stresses the underlying stressed conditions of the neighborhoods that were already stressed, right? It was it was the same neighborhoods who needed food, were probably most at risk to police violence, who um, suffered uh, from some of the uh, uh, climate uh, stresses like heat and the urban heat island and all of that stuff. Like it was these same neighborhoods. And so in many ways, that's how these dots get connected. It's mm -hmm. like, it, and it, in some ways it feels like an aha, like, of course, why did we think any any other way? But it was so, it, 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 it is so in black and white that it's the same communities that we you know, know. There were three New York zip codes that accounted for 15% of all the food delivery. Hmm. Um, you know, so it, 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 you know, you had this incredible concentration of vulnerability and need, mm -hmm. um, you know, and they're the same, and, and those are the same neighborhoods that will be most vulnerable in any number of different kinds of crises that, um, you know, the city and, 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 and country and state will, will need to respond to. So in some ways, that's the, uh, that's how that all comes back mm -hmm. um, in many ways. And I would say... You know, just to not because we're I'm on the show with you. I, I mean, I've said it before. I think 
you're pointing us to uh, structural racism as the entry point in Boston to talk about resilience and fragility. Like that was so perfect and brilliant. And it took us a little while to wrap our minds around, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but once, but once we got there, it was like such an aha. It is the cause of so much community fragility, which mm -hmm. is the opposite of what we're trying to do with resilience, right? So that absolutely makes sense um, as the entry point. And as you know, but just to say for everyone here, Boston published this amazing resilience strategy that uses uh, structural racism as the entry point, and then. I don't know, I'd say six to eight other US cities not didn't necessarily use it as the single entry point, but devoted serious effort um, into looking at that. I'm thinking okay. Tulsa and LA and Houston um, and, and, you know, like, and now we're seeing it. You wouldn't now in some ways in, in the US, Atiyah, you, you wouldn't publish a resilience strategy without looking at racism as one of the drivers of fragility in the city. You might not make it as front and center as you all did in Boston, but I, you know, I, I think that was like a sort of gold standard. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. I, um, you know, as I think about um, this, so two things, as I think about your experience in New York City, and in how you just talked about it, it makes me think of, you know, when, when 100 Resilient Cities came up with this um, resilience definition, right? There, and there's this whole piece around chronic stresses as being, um, you know, one of the things, one part of this, you know, two part um, ways we needed to look at the world and connect the dots between in order to be, um, be able to develop the types of knowledge, skills, tools, policies, um, and all of the things that we need to support individuals, communities, systems, um, entire cities to, to thrive in spite of the realities of those things. And so the chronic stresses for um, folks who are watching really speaks to the day-to-day -day struggles people are having in communities, right? Um, and there's an opportunity, I think, in emergency management to do a better job of connecting those same dots, right? Because yeah. to your point earlier, there's you know, we talk about all of the technical stuff, the sexy toys. I mean, let me reframe that, y'all. <laughs> the toys that we think of as being sexy in the field uh, yeah. of emergency management um, <laughs> that, you know, the, that we, we fixate on these things that are exciting, right? Yeah. They're interesting. Um, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's the shiny things. But the reality is we do this for people and we do this for communities. And when we don't have context on the realities of communities, I don't care what kind of plan we come up with um, in, in, in a closed door room with just city folks. And in many cases, only some city folks, right? Um, you know, we're not going to have the kind of context we need to actually put together a um, an emergency management operations plan for a city, right? That um, uh, that are um, actually going to be helpful, right? Um, this is a, a, an incredible challenge we have in the field um, in being able to make it real, 
right? Um, we, we often, our, our relationship with the community as emergency managers at city levels tends to be, you know, we're gonna come out and tell you all the stuff you need to do as community members to, you know, be prepared because, mm -hmm. you know, you need to be on your own for 72, 96 hours, blah, blah, blah. Um, and and it's, just, it's a huge disconnect between reality and what um, guidance came from FEMA or that the assumptions, the general assumptions we make, and we think that it applies to everyone when the reality is we have to start with priority populations, right? We have to start with the most complex situations. And what I mean by that for, for the audience is um, it, it's, it goes back to some old language that um, uh, HHS, the US Department of um, Health and Human Services used back in the 90s, where they said, you know, we're gonna, when we do our research, we're gonna make sure that we include um, certain groups of people because we know that there are differences and nuances to how um, different uh, medications and different initiatives impact people. Um, and so priority populations isn't saying that some groups are more important than others. It's saying that there's a reality and there's complexity and that if we start with complexity, it's more likely that what we put together will meet the needs of the broad range of needs that we have in communities. Um, and I say all of that to say, you know, as I think about um, the work that you did with 100 Resilient Cities and really forcing all of us as cities, even Boston, even though we were like racial equity, we want to center it. I, I appreciated the fact that you were trying to make sure we were connecting the dots yeah. between the priority focus and how it impacts the day-to-day -day lives of communities and how it showed up during disasters yeah. and ways that we needed to plan for the nuances. So I just want to pause there because I saw you taking notes of what I was saying. And so I want to I uh, 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 be quiet for a moment. Well, I mean, I have a few thoughts. And I, I mean, one thing just to point out is that in some ways, what's so magical about resilience is it doesn't focus on a particular hazard. Mm -hmm. It says we need to build a kind of community strength that will serve us regardless of whether the next thing is a heat wave, a pandemic, an earthquake, a hurricane, a police incident, whatever those things are, we need to build the kind of strength that's gonna serve us regardless of what that happens. And that for me has been so magical because, you know, when I joined the Office of Emergency Management in you know the late nineties, we thought the hurricane was and then I mean, we had 9-11 and we had the anthrax attacks and we had the plane crash in Queens and we had, you know, the 2003 blackout and the financial crisis. And only in 2012 did we have hurricanes in. And so partly what this resilience is, is about, is about building that strength. And, and then what I was scribbling as you were talking is, you know, I think one of the things that, that really resonates with me is how we need to have emergency management kind of connected to all of these other systems that are out there and really um, in a really intentional way. So community-based organizations, to your point, how do we how do we connect better with community-based organizations in the day-to-day? -day? And we have I mean, there are structures, right? There are OAD, Voluntary Organizations Act of Disaster. Mm -hmm. 
and, and emergency management has gotten much better at that. But I, I just think, you know, how do you leverage that? So that, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we've been thinking a lot about is, and it felt like this was an issue in COVID, was connecting service, uh, social service agencies with operations capacities. Um, and, of, you know, of course, this was a, a disaster that impacted uh, the poor and the elderly. And COVID, I'm talking about. And so you have those agencies that are largely social service agencies that are called on to do these really operational things. And how can we begin to give those kind of capacity? Mm-hmm. And then the third thing um, that what you were saying really resonated with me is like connecting emergency management back into the day-to-day operations of a government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've often thought like when we're doing these exercises, you know, big tabletop looking at, you know, uh, bioterrorism or hurricanes or, you know, earthquakes or, you know, we do all these kind of, and we generate all this really interesting information about vulnerability. But mm-hmm. I personally have never, and maybe there are emergency managers on here who will tell me wrong, but I've never seen that vulnerability information then passed to the kinds of agencies that can work on it on a data or organizations, doesn't mean have to be city agencies, kind of organizations that can work on it on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. and start to mitigate that fragility and build resilience, right? That would be the magic thing. Um, but it's kind of a little bit of a, a partition between oh, our emergency operations here yeah. and that level, and then like everything this, you know, the city's doing on the other side, which is like the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, and, and it's it's interesting because um, I saw that come to a head um, after the marathon bombing. So in another previous life, um, I was the, um, the director for public health preparedness for the Boston Public Health Commission, which is the local public health department. And that was during, and I was the, the in that role during the marathon bombings. And, uh, you know, for two years, you know, our office was involved in the response and recovery efforts, um, especially as we transitioned from um, the supporting healthcare infrastructure to have everything that they needed to deal with a mass casualty event, everything from um, extra blood supply to amputation kits to all types of things that um, are horrific to think about why they needed those things and the impact of the bombings on real people. Um, I'm sharing this because one of the, one of the things that that happened during that time is we actually saw in the city of Boston um, the month or two, probably the two months after the marathon bombings, a significant uptick in shootings in the city of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in, the, in similar ways that we're seeing an uptick in violence during COVID-19. Huh. And um, the community was frustrated with the city because we had all of these resources pouring into the city of Boston. I mean, pouring in for the, for the survivors of the bombings. Meanwhile, we are at, you know, over 50 shootings in a, you know, uh, just over a one month period in the city of Boston um, in all these different communities. And they're saying like, how can it be that there's all these resources to support those folks, but we're having community emergencies and no one is here to help us. 
And it was in, in because of the relationships that we had with the community, we were able to have those kinds of conversations and be like, you're right. And let's let's see how we can make sure that this is multi-purpose, right? Multiple benefits in terms of how we having these resources available to the city. Um, and in a concrete example is um, one of the uh, one of our healthcare partners actually um, was which was in um, one of our underestimated communities, predominantly um, Black community in Boston. Um, they were um, a dialysis center, and there was a shooting outside of the dialysis center, and they didn't know what to do, right? So it's not like you can just move the patients out from harm's way. They're all hooked up to machines. Um, and, and so they reached out to us and number one, they needed trauma support because we had all of these trauma resources. Um, but they also needed, um, you know, a, a help on planning for when emergencies happen outside of their facilities or in, that impact them. Like what are alternative things that they can be doing as staff to support their patients and to support each other. Yeah. Um, so we were able to help connect them with resources, but really it was this aha moment. This is when I really, really, really understood the connections and, and when you're we're talking about um, the the same places in the city that needed the food during COVID-19 or the same communities that need, you know, fill in the blank. Um, the, the maps are all the same, right? Whatever the whatever inequity you want to look at, the maps are the same. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and it speaks to this whole piece around the, the people and communities that are marginalized, underestimated. Um, that are struggling the most in day-to-day -day life are the ones who are disproportionately bearing the burden. And, and, and when we think about, well, how does emergency management better plug into the day-to-day, -day, right? Mm -hmm. How do we, um, you know, use those moments to, to be better, right? And, and I'm not saying we did everything perfectly, um, but that was one of those moments where it was like, of course, we can apply these resources to support you know, what's happening in the community. And there is, I think there is some relationship, you know, this is a key of opinion. I think there is some relationship between the increase in violence and the fact that there was a terrorist attack in Boston or the increase in violence and the fact that we're in a pandemic. I haven't done the research on that, although I am a nerd and an mm -hmm. academic, pro-academic, um, you know, I, I, I have not delved um, or seen anything that really talks about um, those pieces as much um, at that level. Um, but I would like to see us in emergency management spend more time figuring out how we can support the community with the resources we have, our our expertise around um, being conductors of the chaos, right? Yeah. We coordinate resources, information. Um, we're making sure that everyone, that all the chaos is at least heading in the same direction, right? That we're all yeah. um, clear about what the outcomes we're supposed to be accomplishing and how do we apply those to day-to-day um, or, or um, how do we partner with communities and with um, departments, other city departments, to leverage that infrastructure because it makes us better as emergency managers to be able to do our job better, not just through exercises, but real life stuff. Yeah. And it helps our partners understand better who we are, what we do, and why it's important to have us involved in the regular stuff and when there's an emergency. Can I ask you, the, you, you, the example you gave about the dialysis machine, the dialysis centers, mm -hmm. that's when you were at um, public health though, right? Not emergency yeah. management. Do you, do you think that you would have, did emergency management have the same relationships with the community or was that more of a public health? 
core competence. It was a more it was more of a public health core competence, um, and mainly because um, we actually built out a whole um, community resilience program within the Office of Public Health Preparedness. And so we had over the last, leading up to the marathon bombings, we had probably about three years, we had built out this program been going into different neighborhoods. And so we had, we actually used to create um, uh, our situation report or situation brief, depending on, you know, how, which, um, how you like to term it. Um, but the SIT rep, we used to create a sanitized version of it and send it to our community partners. Right. I mean, they were a part of everything. Right. Um, but yeah, it was to answer the, that was the long answer. The short answer is yes. And the reason I ask it is because, I mean, when I was at emergency management, I created um, the first big uh, preparedness campaign in New York called Ready New York in 2001 and, and, or 2002. And um, I went to, New York uh, Department of Health to really learn about risk communication and preparedness communication, how to do that. Health had a much more mature view on it. And there was an amazing woman uh, there named Sandy Mullen, who was like a mentor to help think through all of those things. And I wonder, as if we have progressive emergency management agencies around the country who want to do better around integrating with community-based organizations and understanding what is going on in the community and really treating you know this sort of system of system in our most vulnerable areas really trying to do has you know risk mitigation in those areas like health has a lot to teach us there yeah um, they have a much more holistic perspective on that and could actually go much help us go further as emergency managers i think i second that and um without giving away too much um we uh contracted on all eight all aces um uh was doing work with the new york city department of public health um specifically with their um, office of emergency preparedness preparedness and response oper um, and it was really um, amazing. They had a whole part of their organization that was just about community partnerships. Yeah. Um, and that was a tool that was leveraged um, during regular times when there was no emergency and when there were emergencies. And I think there's yeah. definitely something to learn. And I want to caution us in public health um, that we uh, uh, we are not perfect, um, and that um, there are times when um, we can sometimes rest on our laurels as being the ones in government who are kind of um, kind of um, sounding the alarms when inequities are playing out um, and kind of pointing to the problems. Um, and um, there's also a responsibility for us to make sure that we're we're not getting too comfortable in being in that role. Um, and and uh, an example of that, um, I'll, I'll give a high level example, um, is you know the idea of um, being the best at something, right? And it's like, well, being the best out of city government when city government just struggles like horribly <laughs> with partnering with communities. Right, is not a place to rest our laurels. However, public health has a much better track record than any other um, uh, most departments in having those kind of relationships on the ground. Yeah. Um, and so I wanna shout out to all of our public health folks who are, are doing that, that hard work 
um, of building those relationships and make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable and not getting too comfortable with the fact that we um, are better than lots of other folks and we can always be better. And I will say, I think, I mean, particularly large city governments um, that get sort of siloed, mm -hmm. those relationships can be held at public health, but not serve the larger city government and mm -hmm. their, those partners as well. And so, like, I got to think, you know, in my fantasy world, if I'm going to go be the deputy mayor somewhere to... You know, when 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 you're are, the mayor, are you dropping hints, Michael? When, you, when you're you when you're the mayor hints? of Boston, Matias, and <laughs> you know, and I'm your deputy mayor, I want to be your <laughs> community engagement because that's the kind of thing. Like, health needs its its engagement, but so mm -hmm. does all. You know, so does economic development and uh, senior. Uh, you know, the the senior citizens agency and and and. And especially as we go into what's likely to be some really difficult, you know, years, we are going to need to leverage the community-based organizations, the nonprofits, private sector, and government resources mm -hmm. in a more efficient, complementary way, as opposed to the good old days when we were rich and we could throw money at different problems, you know, and be okay with it. Yeah. And so, like... I think you could get away with like making this someone's, someone really senior's full-time job to make sure that we are engaged, you know, um, uh, uh, with the community-based organization. And that pays dividends in anything. You have another police incident, you, you know who's going to sort that out? Your community-based organization. If you have a big hurricane, it's going to be your community-based organizations. If you have a, a, an earthquake, or whatever, it's going to be your community-based organization. So, like, like to me, that feels like a tiny amount of money to invest for massive dividends. But you know, you're going to have to. I mean, the reason why probably the mayors don't do this is because you know it's hard work, and you got to stand up there and get sh shouted at by people who are pissed off about this thing or that thing, rightfully so. Mm -hmm. And you might just have to take a little bit. But when you know, when you get into the into difficult situations, those are going to be the most important relationships you have. Yeah. And so I just think that would be, I mean, yeah, this is a little bit of the resilience gospel we're preaching here, but I, I do think that um, that would be really important. Yeah. And you hit on something um, that is hypercritical, right? That, um, you know, so in, in resilience, right there, the, the nerds break it up into domains. And one of the domains is governance, right? And governance, oftentimes people translate into government and sometimes they think about the private sector or kind of like critical infrastructure. Right. Um, and the reality is that um, governance is really about how we make decisions yeah. um, uh, before, during and after emergencies. And when we don't have the community at the table where we're, we're unintentionally um, contributing to systems of oppression, right? Because if my voice and my choice is not a part of decision-making, then yeah. you're basically saying, I'm doing these things to you, for you. Yeah. Um, you don't get to be a part of the conversation. Um, and, and it's the opposite of best practices or promising practices, right? If we want to make the best decisions, then what we would do is get that context. Yeah. 
um, because um, into your point, it does take a lot of time, yeah. but it also takes a lot of time to justify, um, you know, to do the mental gymnastics and the verbal, the logical fallacies and like all the stuff that happens after we um, do things where we didn't have the context and we made mistakes yeah. and we get called out for it. Right. Yeah. So you can pay now or pay later. And it's like the whole ounce of preven prevention versus, you know, is worth a, a pound. Of yeah, yeah. I, I, I would even take it further. I, you know, I'm going to say a little something, but then I, I, I'm going to ask you about your uh, engagement in blocking. You know, I'm going to do this. So, but I think this process of engagement is actually an act of building resilience, regardless of where you get to. Absolutely. It's strengthening this muscle of how we, you know, and, and you're absolutely right, it's not government, it's governance, um, that how we actually engage with one another. And what I found, I see it all the time. I saw it throughout 100 RC, and I don't, I don't have a, a, an easy solution, is it's very easy to ask the community once or maybe twice. Mm -hmm. I've seen, and I see it now even with clients, where it's like, let's send out a survey or let's do a, you know, town hall. Now it's a virtual town hall, but, you know, like we can, we'll, we'll do, we'll ask your opinion and everyone pops up and we take really good notes. But what's, that's, that's, that's just the first step. You got to then do some design, whatever that is, it could be policy design, it could be actual you know, structural design, whatever the thing is, and then come back and say, we heard this, we did this. Now let's get some more feedback and do another group. And then you don't have to listen to everything, every, you know, community member shouts out. <laughs> you, you don't have to act on all those things, but you have to, you know, treat people with respect that they're being hurt. And you say, yeah, you guys wanted this thing. That's not practical. We designed this other thing. Now let's talk about that. And we can go through, you know, we, we can go through that. And that's where you really get, we saw it in New York with this, this program called Rebuild by Design, which was post Hurricane Sandy. Mm -hmm. It was like a year's worth of engagement. You know, we, you, you said this, we did this, you, we designed this, how, what do you think? You know, drafts and drafts. And when the city years later tried to alter those proposals, the community was like up in arms because they were really invested. And that hopefully is the kind of structure I think, um, community strength that ultimately makes communities more resilient and less fragile. So I don't know if you've told this story on, on All Aces on the Air, but can you, you did this amazing job of community engagement where you met people really where they were. The most archetypal of this is you rode the bus uh, with people, but that's just one like kind of anecdote. Talk about doing engagement in a really hyper local mm -hmm. way uh, for the Boston Resilience Strategy. Oh, thank you for that. And um, <laughs> no, I haven't talked about it that in very much detail on All Aces On Air. So thank you. Um, uh, I think so. So one of the so so I want to say something about what you said, because I think you hit okay. on something important that I want to reinforce and um, say that government tends to think um, as in traditional ways of power and leadership, right? And so I see this a lot with organizations we work with. I see it, in, in, which is like um, government, local, state, federal, 
private sector and nonprofit world, which is I am the leader, therefore I have to have all the answers, therefore I have to, I have to, I have to, right? And you see that same attitude then permeate throughout government when it comes to partnering with the community. And so, um, and so I think there's a process that we need to go to in, in um, being able to invest in communities, um, civil, uh, civic infrastructure, um, to be able to learn about how, what it is that we're doing in city government, how it works so that they can be real partners in it. Um, and that we're um, not being episodic with the engagement, right? Like we bungee in and bungee out all the time. It's like resilient strategy and we're right. here, we're doing the thing and then we bungee out, right? right. We're working on a, 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 um, a plan um, for your, your neighborhood. We're gonna bungee in and then we're gonna bungee out. Um, and so it's all of these, um, these episodic things where it would be nice if there was a, a consistent relationship, there was consistent infrastructure, um, and, and the, the, one of the things we did with the resilient strategy was to prioritize that engagement um, and uh, to do things like um, ride the bus, ride the train, um, go to movie screenings, we went to plays, we, we partnered with um, uh, several organizations to do community um, uh, plays that happen across the city, um, where we were then able to have these really um, amazing conversations with um, with folks from a broad spectrum across the community, um, especially those who we usually don't hear from because we ask them to come to spaces as opposed to going to where they are. Um, and I think when we talk about um, hearing people um, that, you know, that's one part of that engagement spectrum, right? And then there's another piece that's about partnering. Let's fully understand the problem that we're trying to solve for, the trade-offs, so that when you're give when you're telling us as government this is what we want that um, that it's informed and it's not something to your point where it's like well that's not realistic mm-hmm. right or it's like but if we are in a, a a deep partnership with one another then we can have that conversation and do the the push and pull of um, of building the kind of um, relationship that I can give meaningful feedback. And, um, and, and, it, and it, it actually um, is informed enough where um, I'm not having to struggle, right, mm-hmm. with understanding um, or, or with um, the recommendations that you present as a community member, right? Mm-hmm. Because I spent the time educating you about the challenges and the realities. And so now we can be in this conversation and I can get the full context of your expertise as a community member and you can you have the full context of my 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 content or or technical expertise, right? Yeah. Um, and and I think there's something really powerful about that that's missing in our in the way that we run government right now. Um, it feels very adversarial, um, you know. It's it, it unnecessarily so, right? Yeah. And and the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's that that going back full circle, that. Um, you know, it's like pay now or pay later. And if you pay later, it's going to cost you way more. You might as well invest the time up front to do this engagement and build these relationships long term so that you 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 don't waste time having to justify all of these missteps that were made because we didn't get the good information and didn't involve the people who were most affected, um, which is one of the key ways that oppression just keeps perpetuating itself, both at systemically but also in terms of how we engage with each other at the interpersonal level. Um, so I'll stop there. Just to follow up, who do you think 
does that kind of, like what the, the problem you just described feels like one of the essential problems that we need to solve for mm. this year and next year and the year after. Like we, this is the, this is one of the big problems. Mm-hmm. Who do you think does it the best either in the U S or globally? Well, I, I, you know, I can speak anecdotally, right? right. But I don't know. Right. Um, so I think um, uh, the, the, I'm trying to think it was the Netherlands yeah. um, did some really interesting community um, driven um, approaches where, you know, um, they, they spent a lot of time investing in relationships um, and, and for the folks who don't know, um, you know, it's, it's um, Rotterdam, I'm thinking of in particular, uh, yeah. has a very diverse community and it's over 50% um, immigrants from all around the world. Yeah. Uh, and so their, their efforts were super intentional about partnering over a long period of time to make sure that they got all the input, that folks understood what they were trying to accomplish. And the type of climate mitigation efforts that they have implemented are phenomenal. Um, and widely celebrated, not just by themselves, patting themselves on the back, but also by the community. Um, yeah. So that's real. I think really powerful, and is a testament to what happens when you invest that time up front. Yeah, um, I, I, it's funny that was also in my mind. There, yeah. just to add a little more detail, it's um, they have like sort of district captains or something. I forget exactly what they call yeah. them. They're people who are on the hook for really working with the community and being that liaison. Mm-hmm. We have some of that structure too in the US, you know, in New York we have community boards and you have other places. But somehow this this felt um, more real. The other, the other place I point to is Porto Alegre in Brazil, which was also mm. one of the million cities, which pioneered um, uh, participatory budgeting where citizens can really decide on how money is spent really directly. Now, that led to a whole bunch of interesting engagement. Of course, um, the Brazilians will say that then the conversations only became about budget items and not about other things like policy things or mm. you know, other things. And so it got to it got to be a real brass tax exercise as opposed to, um, you know, a, a more engaging thing, but if if people out there on the on the call want to learn about at least two really innovative models, Rotterdam and Porto Alegre would be two interesting places to start. And I agree. I mean, this is this is it. This is what I've been thinking a lot about. And I mm-hmm. think, um, uh, you know, if we're going to fix our cities, we're going to have to think about how to engage with the communities in really fundamental new ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's funny because, um, you know, when I think about something you said, I'm just looking at my notes here. You said, um, you know, we that resilience really is about building the kind of strength that community partnerships and relationships can offer. Um, and I'm having a, a slow processing moment um, where one of the things that we didn't talk about um, is, you know, we talked about racial equity, right? And racial equity exists because of the thing called racism. And so um, when I think about the barriers 
to resilience in communities and us building the type of community strength um, that allows us to have these kinds of relationships and partnerships. Um, I see racism as one of those big barriers and in, in, in forms of oppression, right? Where, um, you know, if I can't see you as, as, as someone with agency and power and having um, things to contribute to decision-making, right? Um, then I'm gonna keep doing what I've been doing. Yeah. Um, if I don't see your community as, um, as the, the, the complexity and nuance of the historical context of why communities look the way they do, then I can just say they, they just don't want it enough, right? They don't work hard enough and their, their values um, are the thing that gets in their ways. Um, uh, and as opposed to the, the more complex story that we made conscious decisions as a society that led to these poor outcomes um, in different communities. And then we um, never quite addressed the root causes of why we made those decisions. And we built systems on top of it that just continue and without any change or pivot in um, a shift in how we're approaching things, just by virtue of doing what we've been doing, we, we will see the same pattern of, um, of racial inequities and all the other inequities. And then uh, the last thing I'll, I'll say is, um, you know, I, I'm with you on this whole piece around how do we how do we shift the dynamics of the community relationship with government? Mm. Um, and it's one of the things that I think I spent my career in at the local level of government um, really working towards, which is, um, you know, owning the fact that government has misstepped. Right. Like it, the, 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 the distrust that exists in communities is not mistrust. Right, like yeah. there's evidence for yeah. why they should not trust us, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, being being able to own that there's a historical context that I am a part of something that has done harm to people, um, and that I am here to earn the trust and respect to be able to be in a real relationship. Um, and and what are the ways that we can help leaders build the kind of skills um, that it takes to be able to show up in that way? Um, as opposed to, uh, here's what I'm going to do to you and for you. Right? Yeah. It's just a different way we need to approach it. Yeah. And I, I, I have two thoughts based on what you said. One is we would be remiss to end this call and not talk also about, or at least mention, because we don't really have time to talk about it, but not talk about the ways in which every disaster exacerbates the inequality. Mm -hmm. And COVID is going to be the worst of, of all of the disasters, mm -hmm. every disaster. The poor get poorer and the rich don't get quite as, don't, don't get equally poor, mm -hmm. right? Or in some cases, the rich get richer, right? So like, I mean, that is, it, it's not that disasters are sort of, oh, uh, sort of uh, neutral events. Mm -hmm. They're actually exacerbated. Yeah, they pull the covers off of what the problems we already had were, and then makes them worse. Yeah. Um, it's it, it in a scary. Um, thank you for bringing that up because a scary number I saw recently. Um, you know, so another hat that I wear in my current life um, mm -hmm. is I'm part of the Black Boston COVID nineteen coalition, and we've been doing a lot of advocacy work um, to um, address the fact that you know, especially in Boston, um, that the disproportionate burden of um, deaths and cases have been um, Black people by the numbers um, in the, the whole kind of diaspora of Black people. Um, and the, the 
one of the big things that I have um, learned from that process um, is how much, how invisible the pain and suffering in communities of color, in, in especially in the Black community, is right now. I mean, people are talking about it, but being close to folks who are suffering and giving out gift cards and, and figuring out how to connect folks with what little jobs are available and like all of these different things that need to happen, fighting with, you know, leaders of the city and, and, and state government and to, to try to get resources where they should be by the numbers, not because, you know, I mean, it's just all types of problems. But the, the thing that jumped out at me the most in this most recent report I saw is that um, you know, Boston was already at, um, with Black people in Boston, at about um, 26 or so percent uh, of folks living in poverty. And that they projected earlier um, this summer, into the summer, late spring, that you should add another 13 to 14 percent on top of what poverty already existed, on top of that number. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that mean um, longer term? And then when you think about um, all the jobs that were lost, right? And uh, in, in without a workforce development strategy that is completely and totally revamped, like you literally have to throw out um, the, um, you have to throw out the old um, uh, workforce development strategies because COVID-19 has shifted so much of what is what the future of the economy and the workforce is gonna look like. Yeah. How are we making sure that we're creating the kinds of, um, of pipelines into where the future is gonna go with jobs, right? To address what I've seen um, by the numbers is the biggest racial inequity, which is the racial wealth gap. Yeah. And I wanna highlight a couple of folks um, uh, oh, can we add the report from Boston into the chat? Yes. Um, Rico or Miles, can you um, go to Google Boston, um, uh, Resilient Boston, yeah. um, and Re- Boston Resilient Strategy, and it'll bring up the PDF link. Um, thank you, Sarah, for asking. And I just want to um, uh, pause and just acknowledge that folks um, have been chatting with us. Um, and uh, uh, Heather Watkins, who I just want to explicitly say her name because she is a disability advocate in Boston who is super fierce, super amazing, and um, what has been in a, uh, throughout my career in the city has been a great partner in holding um, me and the city accountable for making sure that people with disabilities are at the table um, and that they are, um, they're the unique situations um, are part of the conversation and helping us to see that all the maps are the same. And in Boston, when you look at the map of um, uh, where the highest concentration of people with disabilities are, they are also in communities of color. Mm-hmm. Community, you know, like the layers are all on top of each other. So shout out to um, her. And I also want to say thank you, Sarah, Cisco, for making the recommendation um, and that we are, um, uh, uh, we'll definitely send the recording. Um, we'll definitely have the recording on intentionallyact.com um, for folks to access after this for you to share with your colleagues. Um, so all that said, we are right at 6.30. And so what I wanna do is a speed closing, which is, 
what is it that you would like um, to leave folks with? We talked a lot about, we talked about a lot of stuff that you want to leave people with tonight. I I have two thoughts very quickly. One is sort of a downer and the other might be a little more uplifting. The downer is just what you were saying at the end, which is the wealth gap is getting bigger and we have completely, uh, I mean, um, screwed up how we have reacted to COVID and um, especially with underserved communities. That is no question. But, um, and, but here, and, and the downer part actually is that we're only at the beginning. We're gonna get a vaccine soon, but the real damage that you're talking about, Atia, is still to come. It's the economic fallout over months and years. That's the, that's the really heartbreaking part of it. So we can still fix it. I mean, we can still, mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. it's not over. It's not like, oh, darn, we screwed up COVID. We, we still got an opportunity to try to begin to fix it. And, and the second thing, and that sort of piggybacks on this, is that we are going to go into a, 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 a moment of real opportunity. There will be stimulus and Green New Deal and recovery funding and, you know, IA and PA and, you know, and Stafford Act funding. There'll be mitigation funding, all of that stuff. If we deploy that with an equity, a racial equity focus, we can really change the way our communities are. And mm-hmm. it's not the only thing. This is, uh, it has to be done in concert with lots of other stuff. And, you know, you can be more or less uh, optimistic about that. But we are sitting at a moment of real opportunity. And so shame on us if we don't really take that and try to work towards that. I don't need to say anything else, y'all. Michael Berkowitz is in the building. He um, is, in, like I said, I'm going to begin. I'm going to end how I began, which is he's an amazing human being, brilliant um, on the theory side of things, conceptually and practically. Um, and all I'm going to say is I am sending lots of love, hope, and action to each and every one of you. And um, you know how to find us. This is All Aces On Air. We appreciate you and look forward to seeing you next time. You've been listening to Intentionally Act Live from our website, intentionallyact.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Submit your stories and questions for future episodes by emailing us at info at allacesinc.com. Until next time.